Shabbat Shalom. Uh, it's so fabulous to be with our friends here in room 24 and 25. Thank you for being here in person. So fabulous to be with all of you who are learning with us online. Uh, last week's class began with a searing vignette of a young man, Olga Sansky, who was age 26 and was murdered in a terrorist attack in late January in East Jerusalem. And the school from which he was an alum, Amit, sent out a notice about him, and their tagline was not, uh, may he rest in peace, and it was not, Baruch uh, Dayan Ha'emet. Its tagline was, Hashem Yikom Damo, may God avenge his blood. And last week, we had a whole conversation around praying for revenge. May God avenge his blood is something of a prayer, and do we pray for revenge? Are we comfortable, etc.? And of course, the answer is the sources on both sides. This week's class builds off of that energy, because this week, the question is not, do we pray for revenge? This week, the question is, do we take revenge when we can take revenge? And the issue is capital punishment. And it turns out that the mass murderer of the Tree of Life synagogue is going to be going on trial in April. And it turns out that because this case was brought under the previous administration, which had a posture of seeking the death penalty, the current Justice Department is going to seek the death penalty. And the question is, do we want to not pray for revenge? That's our question. Do we want to take revenge? And how do we think about capital punishment uh, in this case? So we're going to thank God for the gift of learning Torah together. And then we'll get right into it. Baruch atah Adonai, Elohim melech haolam, asher kitshanu v'mitzvotav v'tzivanu l'asok v'divrei Torah. Be'arevna Adonai Eloheinu et divrei Toratcha v'tinu v'fi amcha v'yisrael. V'nihye anach nevetzetzaeinu v'tzetzaeinu amcha v'yisrael. K'ulanu yadei shemecha v'londei Toratcha v'shma. Baruch atah Adonai, Hamelamet Torah l'amo Yisrael. Baruch atah Adonai, Elohim melech haolam. Asher bachar banu mikol ha'amim. Benatan lanu et Torah. Baruch atah Adonai, notein ha'torah. So, um, you know, we are a, a conservative shul, so I want to ground this conversation in a very much of a conservative movement uh, principle which is text and context. When I was at the seminary, there was always uh, an exhibit in the, in the very nice seminary library called Text and Context. Any text that you look at, you have to see in the broader context of the society that you're living in. And this issue of capital punishment for somebody who goes on a murderous rampage against Jews at Minyan. By the way, it's, you know, it's who, who is in a conservative shul at 8.30 in the morning. Um, who was there at the very beginning of the day? That's when it happened. It's us. I mean, this is us, right? Um, and so in order to think about that, I just want to name the context before we look at the text. And the context is we're having this conversation on a so-called day of hate, as you all know. This came, you know, it's uh, some hateful organization, a neo-Nazi organization is naming this a day of hate. And we had a whole conversation in our shul, should we have sent out an email to the congregation saying, let's make this a day of love, and uh, like after the Pittsburgh case in the Tree of Life where we had the biggest crowd ever, 
um, to affirm community and hope. Um, it was the single biggest crowd we've ever had. It was Naila size by 9.30 in the morning. Maybe we should call for a day of love, and we decided not to do that because we did not want to um, we did not want to shine the light on this day of hate, but the fact is there's a day of hate. The fact is that incidents of hatred in general are up, and especially against the Jewish people are up. That's our context. And so the question as we're thinking about capital punishment for the Tree of Life murderer is, do we as a society, do we want to press our society, our Justice Department, to say, hey, don't mess with the Jews, uh, don't mess with anyone, there's no place for hate. And if you hate and if you kill, you'll be killed. And is that the, you know, is that, that's a question that's presented by this day of hate context, uh, by the fact that these kinds of incidents of murderous rage and hate are happening increasingly. That's the context. Let's take a look at the text. I just want to ground us in the text, um, it, which is on the last page. This is the seminal text. Uh, if, you, if you ask the question, what does Jewish tradition have to say about capital punishment, this is it. As you know, there's a lot of capital punishment in the Torah. There's a lot of mot yumat. If you, if you violate God's laws, mot yumat, you will be, you know, you'll be uh, executed. And there's uh, different modes of, 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 uh, of capital punishment. But that's all theoretical, that rabbis in, the, in this famous Mishnah actually um, uh, Engage like, should we actually do this? I know the Torah tells us, mot yumat, somebody should, should definitely die, but should we actually do this? And if you look at the structure of this Mishnah, you will see it. there's four voices. There's uh, no, really no, really, 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 no, never, never, never. Yeah, if you do that, we're going to have a really bloodthirsty society without boundaries, and you're left with both. So let's take a look at it, all right? Um, a Sanhedrin that carries out an execution once in seven years is called destructive or, or bloodthirsty. Uh, Havlanit is, uh, is a word now for uh, terrorism. Um, um, so it's bloodthirsty, it's terroristic, it's violent. So if you, if you do an execution once every seven years, that's bloodthirsty, destructive. Rabbi, then that's given by the, an anonymous uh, Atana, okay? Um, Rabbi Eleazar ben Azariah says once in 70 years, that is to say, if a Sanhedrin would execute somebody every 70 years, that would be a bloodthirsty Sanhedrin. Um, then Rabbi Tarfon and Rabbi Akiva say, and they're frequently antagonists, um, so this is, you know, Mitch McConnell and John Kerry coming together on mm -hmm. something, right? Mitch McConnell and John Kerry come together, right? They're frequently antagonists, and they say, and by the way, they're also like the, the biggest name, Rabbi Akiva especially is the biggest name. I mean, this is like the Mount Rushmore of rabbis in the Talmud. Um, says, if we had been members of a Sanhedrin, no one would ever have been put to death. So it feels like all the energy and the momentum is no on capital punishment. And then, as you know, who gets the last word is really important, and the last word and, and the place of the last word. So Rabban Gamliel, who is also Rabban Shimon Ben Gamliel, is uh, another major figure, uh, says they would indeed have increased shedders of blood in Israel. Afhein marbin shochei damim Israel, That deterrence is real. And if you never do capital punishment, you will increase bloodshed. So, 
Dear colleagues, um, I want to start with you. Um, in general, if you could talk about your, your thinking at a, at a general level about capital punishment um, grounded in this framework, and then what the particulars of the Tree of Life massacre uh, murderer would do to your general thinking. And on that, I did want to just invite all of us to take a look on the page one of the handout are the names of these 11 innocent, lovely human beings, members of, of you know, a conservative shul in Pittsburgh who were murdered by this man, and they, they, you know, including famously a Holocaust survivor. She survived Hitler to die in shul at the age of 97 at the hands of a mass murderer. And, and how do you think about capital punishment not only in general, but in the context of these 11 people. Yeah, I, I want to begin by saying something I, I said last week, which is, um, to me, the particular and the universal make a difference. So universally, I don't think we should take lives. I, you know, uh, we choose life. On the other hand, if, if it's someone I know, then I'm there. I'm saying this person needs to die. So it's uh, it, it's very interesting that, well, that I, I think really two ways about this. So can yeah. I, well, here's a related question, which I just want to seed, and then we'll go there deeper. Mm -hmm. When you say this person needs to die, I want to ask which organ of Dan Nesson is talking. Is mm -hmm. that your brain, or is that your heart? It's, um, it's, is it's, that your yeah. emotion, or is that your logic? Yeah, it's it's definitely not logic. It's, it's your kishka. It's exactly. Your neshama. It, it, well, yeah, in other words, and, and we, you know, and uh, we t this is talked about all the time, uh, we have this idea of what your gut reaction, and your gut reaction is really how you, f is really how you, how you feel. Sometimes we overlay that with, with logic, we overlay that by creating boundaries in society, uh, but sometimes that gut reaction is, is uh, even though it may not be the moral thing to do in many ways, is just, is, is just who we are as human beings. So, Dan, but hold on. I, I can't let you off this conversation <laughs> yeah, without yeah. asking the obvious yeah. question. Mm -hmm. There are, so, sadly, tragically, I mean, this is just one of the sick, sick pathological things about our country. Mm -hmm. uh, there are so many mass shootings that they're almost not remarkable anymore. I mean, it's, and right. there's, there's so many mass shootings, it's, it's all the time. Um, it's Walmart, and it's Buffalo, mm -hmm. and it's everywhere. It's California three times in a week, right? So are you saying, so here's my question. If you say that this mass murderer in Pittsburgh should get the death penalty, mm -hmm. are you saying that, the, that our justice was wrongly served because last week the mass murderer in Buffalo got life in prison and didn't get capital mm -hmm. punishment? Would you say that was wrongly decided? Would you say that the mass murderer of the Buffalo case uh, should, should have also gotten capital punishment? And in that case, so are you saying that all cases of mass murder where somebody with a gun shoots innocent people at random, should they all get capital punishment? And is that the country you want to live in? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's very complex. I, I, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking that I'm Rob, Robin Gumliel in this instance, that if we don't have a deterrent such as capital punishment, that it does increase. And I, you know, I don't know what this, I, I know how many hundreds of people are on are in death row um, uh, I believe that mass murderers really should get ca capital punishment. Okay. Elias. So, and by the way, I know you're from 
Argentina, I've been told. Could you also share, like, what is the experience of Argentina on this question? Who cares about Argentina? <laughs> All right. As if I was born there, you know? A <laughs> uh, couple of things I want to say. I'm 100% I'm against the death penalty, 100%. Even in this case? Yes. If we do that, we become them. We become them. We are rational people with good values. We don't kill people. If we do that, we become them. Okay? Second, if you really are speaking with your heart and you really want punishment for that person, build life in prison, like in one of the examples that they say here, 23 hours alone with a concrete bed, alone in your bed, with nobody cares about you, nobody talks to you, that's a much bigger punishment than the death penalty because the death penalty, you're over. That's it, I kill these people, I don't have to worry, I, I get killed so I won't suffer. This, if you want to implement suffering, it's much more suffering, spending your life in a confined place 23 hours a day without talking to anybody, mm. all right? Um, and then, this is another thing, we, I don't want to get into politics, but if you research in the internet about developed countries that still have the death penalty, is Japan and United States. No European countries. Most of the countries that are civilized abolished it, and we are one of them that still continues doing that. So that's why I was asking, not facetiously, what is the experience? I don't know what Latin America's policy is. Like, did you grow up encountering this issue? There is no, no death penalty. There's no death penalty in Argentina no. either. No. So we're really, you're saying that we're really an outlier. By the way, as you know, Israel has executed one person, Eichmann. So um, that if, you, if you look, do, you know, Google death penalty after Shabbat, because we don't Google on Shabbat, um, the, four, the top four countries are Saudi Arabia, China, um, Iran, and United States. And Elias, that's so interesting. Um, what do you think that says about the United States? What does that say about us? Colleagues? <laughs> no, what does that say about I mean, I, like, we don't want to be in that company. Um, but, but, but apparently we are. So what do you, what, why? Why are we there? I don't know. I don't think I'm the person to answer that question. It's, it's uh, something that society has come together and decided over centuries. It's well, I, I think in that, uh, there's this way in which our criminal justice system is very regressive. Um, and even the concept, the idea that uh, punitive measures will deter crime, that's been disproven over and over and over again. Most people, when they're in a, in a mood to go murder people, are not thinking about, well, will I get the death sentence? Will I be in? Like, that's not part of their equation. And so the idea that by implementing intensive and punitive measures that you will somehow make us a safer society, that's false. But we're very attached to that idea. And I think in part that comes maybe from our Christian origins, the sense that if you believe in a Christian idea of hell, then making somebody get faster to hell is a helpful measure. That is a, that is a helpful punishment. If you don't believe in a hell, if you believe in this world, that changes how you uh, weigh the equation. But either way, I think I think that we have a false sense that that what we do in response to these things has. So control how do you explain? How do you explain, Alisa, for example, that countries like Spain, Mexico, and Italy, the most Catholic countries in the world, don't have death penalty? Uh, I, 
I think there's a difference between Catholicism and Puritan roots. So, Eliza, let me just to be clear, um, if this were your decision, if Merrick Garland were asking you, should we go for the death penalty for the Tree of Life murder, what would you say? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Okay. So but there's also, there's another economic Absolutely layer, not. Like, you know, is, let me just focus on yeah. absolutely. In other words, it's not a hard question for you. No, it's it's a simple question for me because A, um, if you look strictly at, if it's just an economic question, it costs much more for us to execute someone than it does for us to incarcerate them for life. Should because that? Because of all the appeals. And I feel like when somebody does such a crime against humanity, I don't feel like we should dedicate a lot of resources to them. I feel like we should save those resources to support the people that are in need, to support recovery, to support the civilization that's around them. Because I believe that um, there was actually a really fascinating article about the driver in the um, the New York case where he drove down a bunch of civilians and his father flew in from Europe and his father says, you know, I, I hope he'll live long enough to, to feel guilt and remorse over what he's done. Um, and I believe that core to our tradition, you think about the biblical idea of, of a city of refuge, that we believe that when you've done something horrible, you need to remove yourself from society and to go somewhere else, but there is the possibility of doing tshuva even then. Um, and I think that's really important for people to, for us to say that, that no one is beyond redemption and that we're not gonna let you free, we're not gonna have you be able to access or murder anyone else, but at the same time, we believe that you owe you owe a debt to society and there's a way for you to repay that. So Elias and, and Elizabeth, I just wanna, before we go to the, to the film, um, I just want to pause in the conversation. We start with Dan's visceral sense, his kishka sense, that this murderer murdered us, this murderer murdered me, murdered us, and I want revenge. Growl. Kishka. Um, do you not have that, or do you suppress that with your mind? What, what do you do with that, that instinct? I just don't think you get very far with that. Like... You can you can go to people's executions. You can be, um, you you can go you can go there. You can stand in the viewing gallery and watch somebody be killed, and you watch the people who go don't leave feeling like oh I feel so much better. Like I watch that person die. Uh, it's not like that does anything for you, and uh, not, there's no th you can't fix it. Right? There's no there's no fixing that kind of pain, no matter what happens to the murderer. Right. Okay. Nothing will bring the people that were killed back. Okay, so in that, with that background, I Will you yeah. share what your thoughts are on this? Um, I will. Uh, is, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm with you guys, I'm not with Dan. Um, but I, but, uh, no, no, it's okay, it's okay. <laughs> but, um, I mean, I suppose, but before we get to the film, then let me ask you this question, okay? Do you think, what do you think of Israel's execution of Eichmann? And if you, you know, if you support the execution of, if, 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 are you rigorously, so rigorously against it, you're opposed to Israel's execution of, of Eichmann, you think it's a moral mistake? And if not, if you're comfortable with it, then, then what's your theory of the case? You know, even when I tried to escape Argentina, you keep bringing topics related to Argentina. Yeah. Eichmann was capturing in, in Argentina, so, yeah. you know. <laughs> You have to stop with that. So, no, uh, but seriously, Lisa. But seriously, I think that the primary driver in that case was not uh, a sense of that was the appropriate measure, but a, a real fear that a citizen was going to 
murder him that they couldn't keep him alive. And the the horror, like what would happen if, a, if an ordinary citizen broke in and killed him and then they had to put that citizen on trial? And so I think very much Israel made that choice as a way of protecting their community and protecting mm. the Jewish community from having to do that. Okay. Because there was that intense security well, protecting him right. for the entirety of the case. It was very iffy whether he was going to survive long enough to be tried. Can I right. just want to... But uh, one more thing I want to say. Yeah. I, I want to reiterate what I said before, that I... Although I'm 100% opposed to death penalty, if you speak from your heart and your real guts, there are ways of making the life of the person much more wor I mean, much worse in prison. That right. Now I got. I mean, I think clearly that's right. I want to. I want to pivot now, if I can, Dan, to the the Michael Dukakis moment. So this is 1988. Dukakis is debating. Uh, he's uh, debating then Vice President Bush. And the first question out of the shoot is, Kitty Dukakis is raped and murdered. Would you support capital punishment? And let's, let's look at the tape. By agreement between the candidates, the first question goes to Governor Dukakis. You have two minutes to respond. Governor, if Kitty Dukakis were raped and murdered, would you favor an irrevocable death penalty the killer. No, I don't, Bernard, and I think you know that I've opposed the death penalty during all of my life. Uh, I don't see any evidence that it's a deterrent, and I think there are better and more effective ways to deal with violent crime. We've done so in my own state, and it's one of the reasons why we have uh, had the biggest drop in crime of any industrial state in America, why we have the lowest murder rate of any industrial state in America. But we have work to do in this nation. We have work to do to fight a real war, not a phony war against drugs, and that's something that I want to lead, something we haven't had over the course of the past many years, even though... Mr. Vice President, your one-minute rebuttal. Well, a lot of what this campaign is about, it seems to me, Bernie, gets to a question of values. And here I do have, on this particular question, a big difference with my opponent. You see, I do believe that some crimes are so heinous, so brutal, so outrageous, and I'd say particularly those that result in the uh, death of a police officer, those real brutal crimes, I do believe in the death penalty. And I think it is a deterrent. And I believe we need it. And I'm glad that the Congress moved on this drug bill and have finally called for that uh, related to these narcotics drug kingpins. And so we just have an honest difference of opinion. Uh, I support it, and he doesn't. So, colleagues, um, I believe that the oral Torah on the 88 election is that Dukakis lost the election in that moment. Um, and that Americans just thought he was like Spock, Leonard Nimoy uh, from Star Trek. Bloodless, no emotion, no humanity, like your wife was raped and murdered, and you're talking about the war on crime and deterrence and this and that, and like, and where's the person? Where's the human? Where's the flesh? Where's the blood? Where's like a human being that I can recognize? And there, there was like an overwhelming sense that, that, you know, that Dan was right. That damn it, let's kill that mother. And, and he lost the election. So I'm, I guess I'm, I'm wondering at, at two levels. Um, First of all, the Peshat and then the Drash. The Peshat is, like, what do you think, now we're 2023, that's ancient history. 
What do you think of his answer, Dukakis's answer then? Uh, like what, what, and, and what do you think, what light does it shed on this question? Now, because they're, they're debating deterrence. We're debating deterrence on the day of hate with upticks, et cetera, et cetera. So I'd love both Pshad and Drash on 88. Aliza? <laughs> It was a different world. I mean, it is a different world. I listen to that language of even just war on drugs, and that's not how we think about it today. I mean, now we're we're thinking about supporting the humanity of every person. Now we're thinking about addiction support. Now we're thinking about um, mitigating risk. It's it's just a different. I mean, no one would would run on a platform of a war on drugs anymore, even though that's a still a serious threat to our society. Um, and I I'm not sure that measuring our moral compass based on what it wins a popularity contest will ever get us very far. Um, so I, I think it's difficult because those are, those are time and moments. You have, a, you have a limited amount of time to get through your agenda. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that he could have. Well, let me just gently push back. Yeah. Um, you, you, you'd call it a, a popularity contest. Another way to frame it is that there's um, a Weltanschauung, a worldview, an American ethic, a way that you know, m millions of ordinary American voters feel. And millions of ordinary American voters were deeply turned off by Dukakis's clinical, sober-eyed analysis, and they wanted Kishka. And I'm trying to figure out, what do you do with that? And on that I mean, you could call it a popularity contest, right. but I want to say there's, there's something, and this kind of gets back to, to Elias's question. We're trying to figure out about our country. I don't understand why we have so many guns. I just don't get that. And I don't understand why we're with Iran and Saudi Arabia in somehow thinking that we need to show condign punishment. Kishka, and so, same word. Yeah, and I, I think I'm very much shaped by the world of social media in that um, you know, we had a, a breakfast for Shabbat dinner a few weeks ago, and my colleague Ashley put together a social media campaign, and we had 2,600 people who watched and liked a video where two people walked into an office and said, hey, Andrew, what's your favorite breakfast food? And he said, oatmeal. That was the entirety of the video. So are you saying that our country <laughs> in 20 years will be governed by these people? No, <laughs> I'm saying that what captures our 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 natural our, our national thought pattern, what what captivates the American psyche, isn't necessarily representative of a deeper truth. It, it's often just what carries the day, and I don't think that that's any different now than it was then. And so I think we have to be very careful, and and our leaders have to be very careful about what they nurture. I think that you know any leader knows. It's not, by the time you get up for the debate, it's too late. You have to have laid your case way ahead of time. You have to have mm. done that work. You have to have done the, the community meetings, and you have to have, have done the education project. And I think that our, our politicians are largely lazy when it comes to educating and comes to, mm. to leading from a moral place. We're, we're leading from a place of popularity, which gets to the lowest common denominator. Dan, you, uh, mm -hmm. you, know, you said what you said. Uh, how did you hear Dukakis? Yeah, I think I heard in the same way that you did this, um, and maybe many people did, that there was like, there was no emotion there. And I mean, the fact that, the fact that, uh, that, that uh, George Bush really presented a much more emotional presentation 
and also that he said that you know that he didn't say that we shouldn't have universal capital punishment. He was very clear that there are some crimes that are, as he said, so heinous, right? Uh, then he brought it back to this, his law and order right, campaign. But, right. but you know, so so in, in the in the instance where you say your wife is raped and murdered, and then uh, with with that, and then without any without any emotion, without any just saying you know the, the universal you know the universal death mm. penalty is not is not the in answer, but there are times when at least it could be considered. I think would have been a better a better uh, a better response. And he definitely, yeah, he he definitely did not did not present himself. Um, as a person that had uh, the emotion uh, that you're looking for in a leader, and I think you know that that's that's what I thought there. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I want to just pivot for a second to the broader question of of our context today. Uh, you know, February <laughs> of uh, of 2023 in this country where uh, you know anti-Semitism is is on the uptick. Uh, CJP tries to distill this um, to a, even a simpler message, calling it Jew hate. Anti-Semitism is too many syllables and too whatever, right? Jew hate. There, there is a thing. And, um, you know, I was watching the news uh, uh, yesterday afternoon, and they're interviewing synagogues. They're interviewing Rabbi Turretz, Temple Emeth. What are they doing about the day of hate, the day of hate? Um, so I want to come back to our context what do you think is the healthiest and sanest response to that reality, both institutionally and as individual human beings? <laughs> I, I think it's a really interesting question because I think we as a Jewish community have, have two different and equally compelling opportunities, right? There's one which says, right, after Pittsburgh, we had the biggest crowd here on a Shabbat morning that we've ever had. And so when you magnify and focus on the danger and on the Jew hate and on the uh, rampant anti-Semitism that's always exists, there's this weird, perverse way that it builds our community and our sense of connection and our willingness to show up. On the other hand, I don't think that that's actually an effective strategy. Like That doesn't last long term, and I'm not sure that I want to be a part of a community that's just motivated by fear and anger and trauma. Um, so I think it's a, it's a choice that we have to make, and I, I appreciate the choice that we've made today and that we're not, we're not allowing hate to carry the day, even if it would give us larger numbers, because we're, we're choosing to affirm and focus on a Judaism of love and of community and of a motivation that's not, that's not generated by haters. So I see a consistent through line. I mean, you're, even though it, it seems from the Wall Street Journal article that the Justice Department is seeking the death penalty in the case of the Tree of Life mass murderer, that your move would be, let's be true to our values, um, and let's, olam um, and let's do that in our justice, and let's do that in our day-to-day. -day. Um, Elias, what about you? Yeah, but I... I I mean, <coughs> one thing that I think is we have to be careful here, like looking like we, if we don't decide on the death penalty, that we look like soft, right? And that's not the case. I, I speaking for myself, I really want justice. I want that person to suffer in a way, right? Uh, at least a little bit of the damage that that person has caused right. to so many people to entire Jewish community and, and to countless, you know, relatives and friends of these people. Right. 
Um, so I, I agree with Alisa. We should we should advocate for peace, but not necessarily saying you know that yeah. this person shouldn't be paying for what he did. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking also, you know, it, what Alisa just said. It, it strikes me that this, what you just said, is what America was uh, on 9/11. You know, we came together as a country because we were threatened because of because of I forget the words you used, fear and um, and that coming together for that purpose is limited. Mm. Is limited. So I want to close the class by asking for an honest self-assessment, which is. On the day of hate, so-called, I want to think about the Lubavitcher Rebbe. May he rest in peace. Um, in the treatment of his book, in, uh, the Rebbe by Telushkin, <coughs> Telushkin notes that the Rebbe lost siblings and close family members in the Shoah, and Chabad was decimated in the Shoah. And the Rebbe never talked about the Shoah. And at least according to Telushkin's book, which came out several years ago, I don't know what the reality is today, but as of the publication of the Telushkin book X years ago, Chabad was the one part of modern Judaism that does not talk about the Holocaust. Right? And that, um, that the Rebbe said uh, the response to all this that we would call Jew hate, that CJP would call Jew hate, is Shabbos, is tefillah, is simcha shal mitzvah, is joy, is the joy of Jewish living, that, that the, the best revenge is a mitzvah. The best revenge is a Shabbos dinner. The best revenge is a song. The best revenge is, is tikkun olam. And, you know, obviously, he's the single most transformative thinker and doer in modern Jewish history. Obviously, Chabad is, is every, eating everybody's lunch. They're following his, his playbook to great success. Kol HaKavot to all of them. Um, how do you think, you know, and like Elias, I know you're on the anti-Semitism committee. Uh, how do you think Temple Emanuel is navigating this tension between we want to stay safe and be safe and make our people feel safe, but we don't want to be like the, we're the against Jew hate synagogue. We want to be the Chabad synagogue. We want to be the Simchash Mitzvah synagogue. We want to be the joy of Jewish living synagogue. Um, like every synagogue wants to be that. How do you think we are navigating that tension? I, I'm going to do an analogy. So in, in my house, I'm, I'm the fun father, <laughs> the fun pair. I do sports with the kids. I do you know, music. I do religion. And my wife is study, do well in the test, and everything. So do I believe that they have to do well at school? Yes. I'm the one in charge? Not. But as long <laughs> as there is somebody else doing it, I'm okay with it. Right. So, in a way, I feel like, you know, first of all, in case of the Rabbi Schneerson, nobody can, nobody can put your, you know, themselves in, in his shoes. What he experienced, and even the, the way he wanted to lead his Jewish community after that is his own choice. I'm not here to discuss that, not even to judge him. Um, but... I believe that in a big scenario like ours, there should be room for everything. I, you know, as you know, Michelle and I led the Temple Tree to March of the Living. I strongly believe that every single young adult should do that to experience what, <coughs> to see with the real eyes what the Jews went through in the Holocaust. 
So I don't believe that we should forget about that. It's part of history, re retelling the, 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 the history for people to learn what happened and not to, you know, to avoid it in the future. But, but again, I, s I still believe that there should be, you are leading happy trips to Israel, you know, 75, and Hartman, and study, and learning. Should be a room for everything. Well, trips to Israel are not just happy now, they're more complicated and nuanced, obviously. Uh, it was supposed to be happy now, it's extremely nuanced uh, and extremely urgent, but I get the point. Um, <laughs> could you say a word, Elias, just about when you were on the march of the, you know, living trip, what was it like for you taking Temple Emanuel kids and families to Auschwitz? Well, I have to deal with my own emotions first because it was really shocking. Mm. And it's something that you see in pictures and you imagine how you're going to feel, but then when you're there, it's like, wow, what was that? You know, and processing that every single day, it takes uh, emotion, you know, and, and being connected with that. and. Uh, and my first reaction was, you know, we, especially when we were in Auschwitz with the, with, the, with the rails of the trains and leading into the main act, we were all looking at the sky and say, you know, what would happen if Israel would have existed in those days with the Air Force coming through here and see all the, the, the people here suffering? And the natural reaction is to think you should have killed all the Nazis, kill them, destroy them, you know, do the worst to them. Um, so that is, that is a, a feeling and a thought that I couldn't avoid having there while I was there. I wanted, you know, revenge, and I wanted, you know, for people, most of them are dead now. But, but it's a feeling that it's, it's hard to, you know, to, to su suppress and repress from you. But right, so you so ended you up leaving Auschwitz, and, and then you went to Israel as part right, of the Right, that's trip. part of the trip. You finish so Auschwitz. You finish Poland, right. like a week in Poland, then you fly to Israel. And what was the impact on the Israel piece of having been there? Amazing. Amazing. You land in Tel Aviv airport and you think, wow, look, look at the trajectory of the Jewish people, you know, from 1945 until now. Look, it's remarkable. It's beautiful. Right. It's inspiring. Yes. But, but Elias, you've actually, to me, you've come back to what I began with, which is when you're there, in that moment, you, as you say, you look to the sky and say, "Why wasn't you know if the Israel, Israeli Air Force was there, and we, we would have been able to kill all the Nazis?" That gut visceral idea. So we we, but we it's all slightly that. different because that's that's in the moment. I, what I heard you saying is that would have been a defensive move. That would have been a protective move, not a reactive, after the fact move. Yeah. I see, yeah. Mm -hmm. So here's what I what I take away from this. <coughs> is that there are these um, themes and patterns and rhythms in Jewish history that recur. Um, that everything old is new and everything new is old. And, and the question that we are always going to be facing as a people is, um, is, is, a, is a question that we're going to face in April when the murderer of Tree of Life goes on trial. And the question is how do we um, how do we be faithful to our core, which is to be safe and, you know, hallelujah, dead people don't praise God. So the first thing is to stay alive and stay safe and stay protected, which is why we have guards and extra today extra guards and today extra police. And I think that's in FOBs and post Pittsburgh. You know, we did not have FOBs before Pittsburgh. You know, before Pittsburgh, our doors were open 24 hours. They were not at night, but uh, from 6 o'clock in the morning, 
until 10 o'clock at night. 6 o'clock is when Rita and Herb Gann come, and Phyllis and Jerry Gordon and Don Friedman come, and Dino Beer, may rest in peace, would come at 6 in the morning. From 6 a.m. until 10 p.m., when you finished your last uh, choir rehearsal, uh, the, the doors were open, no guard, no fob, no security, nothing, including the fact that we had kids in this room, including the fact that we had kids in the preschool. The world has changed that much since 2018, since Pittsburgh. And now, you know, nobody can get in the building without a fob. Um, we have guards, armed and unarmed, et cetera. And we have surveillance cameras. We have NPD, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's all from Pittsburgh. So we have to stay safe and stay protected, and we are. And we can't just be limited to thinking about you hate and how do we stay safe and do we need to get another camera and another guard and another gun and another and another. We have to actually also bring in the Rebbe's teaching about Simcha Hashem Mitzvah. Like that's, that's actually why we do this. That's why we're here. We have to stay safe and then, f and then allow Judaism to inspire us to build a better world. And it's holding on to both of those that has been one of the main challenges of the Jewish people for our entire time until now. So do you have a song? Oh, Yabo Shalom. Oh, Yabo Yabo Shalom. Oh, Yabo Yabo Shalom. Oh, Yabo. Sim shalom, Thank you, colleagues. <laughs>